This is Winning Slowly, taking the long view on technology, religion, ethics, and art. And I am Chris Kreitcho. And I'm Stephen Caradini. And today, Chris and I are going to have an argument about the end of the world. That's really what's going to end up happening, because I'll tell you the outline of what we're about to do. We're going to start talking about an article, and then we're going to move on to, like, the controversy between local, small, meaningful ends in a limited scale versus maximum scope. And then one of us is going to say something like, well, if you're going to talk about maximum scope, then we have to talk about, like, eschatological thought. (laughs) And then we're going to have a discussion about eschatology briefly, but not too long for those of you who aren't specifically of the conservative religious stripe. And then we're going to come back down towards me and Chris, like, maybe coming to some middle ground towards we agreeing with each other, but maybe not on this one. So... That's kind of where we're going. So to start off with, the way that this all came about is that Chris and I have been talking throughout this entire season on the planning side and in the public side about what is the future vision that we can posit. Right. And Chris and I have, because we are two different people, different opinions on what this is and how this is potentially achieved, what can be achieved, and what overall ends are possible or desirable. Right. And so Chris recently wrote a newsletter. I keep trying to call them articles, but they're <laughs> not, I guess. They're newsletters. It does have a public URL on the web because that's important to I was to about me. to say, but you can find it if you want to. So, But anyway, Chris, I'll give it over to you. What was your latest edition of Across the Sundering Seas about? One of the things that... I have become increasingly persuaded of, as we look at these things, that ties deeply into both our Season 5 discussion of Structure and Agency and our Season 6 discussion of rejecting certain kinds of technologies in various ways, is that the ways that we have to solve the kinds of problems that we're facing and the ways that we use the goods that stand before us, the ways that we embrace them, both have to be mediated through an understanding of the effects of the kinds of things we're dealing with and the structural implications of those as well as the individual implications of those. To wit, this morning I was having an argument in a Slack group I'm part of, of a bunch of Christians in tech, about where the onus, where the responsibility lies when we're critiquing privacy issues and how much consumers should be expected to know and respond well and how much we should point the finger at Facebook for its manipulation and abuse of its users. And by argument there, my argument in many places is that individuals have responsibility, but individuals are often not intentionally behaving wickedly. They're being deceived. And while we have a responsibility to seek not to be deceived and to choose wisely among the choices before us, and we'll get into that today because of the other newsletter, not mine, that we're going to talk about as well. Newsletters are a thing, I guess. Uh, They're a thing now. It's 2019, man. If you're not on the newsletter train, like, congrats, you moved from (laughs) 1989 to 1990, but we're back. We're back. But there's also this need to look hard at the way that the structural incentives get set up and that the ways that large players can create structural incentives for many, many individuals that are actually to those individuals' harm. And that might be to those individuals' harm in ways that are not 
at first blush obvious, we talked about this a lot last season, and that are not necessarily harms in the actively causing you physical pain or even emotional pain, but that rather in the sense of virtue ethics that we were talking about, again, at length in season six, that are forming us to be the wrong kinds of people or that are leading us to fail to ask the kinds of questions we ought to ask of the technologies we're using and so on. If we want the goods that these things offer, and I was reflecting on this as well the last couple of days because I was able to use the combination of Twitter and LinkedIn to connect two women who are in Silicon Valley contexts and in churches where a lot of times their female friends may or may not get them and their male friend relationships are complicated. I'll leave aside some of the reasons, but I was able to use these two social networks to connect these two friends that they can be an encouragement to each other. There are goods here. And it's worth my saying that publicly because I've been pretty sour on these things. He's going to say not that for the rest of the episode, <laughs> right. basically. But if we want those goods, how can we attain those goods without being malformed by the tools we're using? And sometimes the way to that is by rethinking the technologies themselves. I talked about an article called The Slow Web from back in 2012, which was trying to point this way with user interface things, and which the author, even by 2016, was saying... I don't think just user interface level changes can solve this, but also to say no web solutions, to say sometimes we've just got to walk away. But I think there's more to say here. I think Stephen has some disagreements here, and I think <laughs> I wish listeners, eyes. you could see the face he just made. It was great. I think Stephen has some thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> so I read Chris's newsletter, and I thought it was totally valid. As Chris just mentioned, it goes along the track of what we've been doing with seasons five and season six. And it really gets at some of the issues that we wanted to get at in season zero, but it took us a bunch of seasons to get to because we didn't have language to talk about this. But now we've made it here. And so my question is, after reading that newsletter, which you so aptly explained because you wrote it, Hooray! Uh, <laughs> what can actually be achieved? And I don't mean this in the like, you know, list three things that we can fix right now, because right. we've talked about how solutionism isn't necessarily the most positive uh, way to view every single problem. But right. what can be achieved? So is there an end where whole cultural change can be achieved, where individual aspects of culture can be achieved? So we talked about how civil forfeiture is evil. Can that be changed? Like, where is the level at which, acknowledging that each of these have their own contours, acknowledging that each of these have their own large sort of spidery web of connections that make some <laughs> things harder and less uh, easy, some easier – what can be achieved? What scale of thing can be achieved, do you think? Right. And some of the background here also is the conversations we've had in our Between Seasons episode with Jessica Blank and in the last episode you heard with Ari Wallach, where both of them, with whom we disagreed deeply on a bunch of things, but we wanted to be good interviewers and let them have their say and then bounce off of those as we come into the rest of the season. Side, side note, we disagreed with a lot of the last question yeah. that Ari Wallach said 
about religion. Yes. Prior to that, we had like minor concerns and mm-hmm. tweak points, and then he started talking about religion, and we were like, I mean, just in case anybody didn't know that we disagreed. <laughs> Because they probably know. Right. We disagreed. We don't think religion is just a technology that moves people around. Right. That's not a thing. Exodus is actually about more than just people moving from one place to another and their collective achievement. Yep. In our book. It's about God. Right. (laughs) Deep actual reality. But both of them, in various ways, gestured at ends and at the kinds of things we want to do and how we get at them. And both of them were in various ways and various degrees concerned with technologies for transformation. And in fact, the biggest hesitation or reservation I had outside of that last question with Ari was to what extent he is still, in fact, captive to that notion of solutionism, that ultimately what we're trying to do is apply these technologies of thought, etc., to getting at better ends rather than worse ends. And that opens up a really big can of worms because at the same time, we're here on a podcast trying to persuade you to think in a certain way so that we will bring about certain ends. Like We're we're implicated in this here a bit. Yeah, and we're in two different states using the internet and several different technologies to even right. be able to create this thing. So right. any critique here should be fully noted as being... <laughs> complicit in whatever we assess. But we can still assess it because like that's what we do here. Right. Part of part of the trick is the old I'm a fish in the water. David Foster Wallace has that great line from his address where he has the notion of one fish swimming by some other fish and saying, Water's nice today, boys, and the other two fish looking at each other and saying, What's water? What? Because oftentimes we can get some wisdom simply from recognizing the milieu in which we live. And I would say that one of our ends, one of the ends I'm interested in with this season, with all of this project, is understanding that we do, in fact, live in a technocratic milieu, that we do have this way of coming at the world, this tendency towards solutionism, this tendency that I've described in Silicon Valley over the last few years of algorithmism, that if we can just tune the algorithms right, we can make the world a better place of applying technologies rather than recognizing that sometimes the only way quote unquote forward is to set the technology down and to do something different. And we can't possibly even begin to say what technologies should we set down? What should we do differently? If we don't recognize first the ways in which we are so thoroughly swimming in this technocratic water. So that's one of the ends. And and I agree with that. I agree that we're in a technocratic milieu, although I don't think that saying that means that Sauron has taken over <laughs> all of Middle-earth. There are good things that this technological milieu, and I'm not saying, Chris, that Sauron made the trains run on time, <laughs> because the trains still don't run on time in a lot of places. It's true. But I am saying that there are goods yes. to this sort of thing in the same way that there are some goods to liberalism. Right. Like we mentioned a couple episodes ago, I'm really glad I'm not being pressed into any wars of religion right now, just because of where I live right. and who is in charge of me. That's really great. Not everywhere in the world actually has that benefit, so that's another thing that's important, that liberalism did not take over, hold everywhere in the same uh, amounts. But what I am saying about the technocratic milieu is that it allows us to see different things. Every age allows us to see different things, just like you mentioned with uh, C.S. Lewis's explanation preface to 
on the Annunciation that every age allows us to see different things. We can clearly see why the the age of the the Romantic to Enlightenment era had some significant issues. What we're trying to do here, and what I resonate with, is is take that sort of stance, see how far we can get outside ourselves, right. and look at, okay, let's try to assess ourselves in the light of the the moral foundations we have that are, we believe, consonant, if not the same as uh, the the beginnings of when the the Bible was written and when the the sort of moral foundations of Christianity were being created in text. And so using those sort of moral and religious foundations, how far outside ourselves can we get to look at what we are as a society, as individuals, and then do something about it? So the the strict answer, if we're gonna if I'm gonna summarize that is one end that can be achieved is that we can rightly assess our culture in a slightly better way. Yeah. We still won't be able to fully rightly assess our culture because we live in it. Right. What's water? And yeah. And I think that's a totally fair end. And I think that's an important aspect of the show. And that's one of the things we've wanted to do this entire time. Next end. What can we actually achieve once we've done that? Once we've right. done seven seasons of analyzing our own cultural milieu, we started to talk this way in – uh, episode two, we started talking about people putting together communities and working towards ends. And then the question of like, okay, so what can they achieve? Like, what can reasonably we expect to see happen? What do you think? Right. And I might even change the language there. <laughs> Unsurprisingly, I would say what what kinds of things might we hope for? Because that that notion of hope and expectation is fraught. And dear listeners, you're going to notice that hope and expectation are th- a fraught conversation point for Stephen and me right now. Yes. It's great. The kinds of things I think we ought to hope for in the, in the short to medium term are recognition and awareness of and pursuit of virtue in those communities of practice, in our churches, in our small groups, maybe especially, of thinking together well, like we talked about back in season four, I think, about what we should do with our cell phones, how we should teach our kids to use or not use cell phones, how we should, not in a binding each other's conscience sense, but how can we help each other think well about what it looks like to help our kids grow up and be virtuous humans living in the context of a technocratic society? Because I do think that we have to do this simultaneous work of imagining a way out of a technocratic milieu, which is nigh impossible, not impossible, but but nearly so in many ways. It is a gargantuan task, and I expect us to spend many years working on this, you and I, whether on this show or off. Yeah. But we also have to do the work, the analogy I made in the newsletter, which I think is a good one, it's one I've come back to often in the last few months in conversations with friends, is... I think that credit scores are abominable. I think they create all sorts of horrible incentives in our current economic system. I think they reinforce some of the worst legacies of racism in our economic system. I think they're bad. And so we should figure out how to get rid of them and do something very different for how we figure out whether we want to give someone a mortgage or not. We talked about this in season six as well. But in the meantime... Most people have to deal with the fact that they live in a world where credit scores determine whether or not they can 
get a mortgage or a car loan or all sorts of things this way. So there's this necessity of simultaneously helping people be as virtuous as they're able in the context they live in and as wise as they're able in the context they live in. Right. Which is that sort of short to medium term forming our communities to be people who are seeking virtue and who are conscious of how things might or might not be forming virtue in them. Is that cycle of, I have to get on Facebook every 20 minutes to see if someone liked my thing, or I have to get on Twitter every 20 minutes to see what new thing came through and whether someone liked that link I shared or that witticism that I dropped in. What are those forming in us? We need to be developing those kinds of habits learning and thinking together about setting down our cell phones, having a basket where we drop them during our small group meeting or over dinner as a family and thinking about when we give our kids cell phones and how we limit their use of them and how not just limiting them in the, no, you won't do this and I'll put on parental controls to prevent you, but how do we teach them to think well and to make those choices more and more on their own toward virtue? That's the short to medium term work we have to do because we do live in this age. We do live in a culture shaped this way. Yeah. So to that end, looking at what Jessica Blank was talking about, they wanted to, uh, and still want to, abolish the death penalty. Right. They did specific things to that end. How does that fit in or not to that framework? Because I see it as part and parcel of doing that. That's part of mm-hmm. building those communities and then using those communities to affect the wider scope of the conversation as I was pushing us towards when I said, like, you can't just go be Amish. Like, you have to be right. Amish plus if you don't <laughs> want to be Amish, right? Like, you, you have to negotiate that sort of situation. So where does that sort of action fit in how you're thinking about it, because that's a real thing that happened, yeah. right? Like people actually did things as a result of a thing, and then some people did not die, literally. Right. Some people who were, in, and in particular, some people who were unjustly accused and unjustly convicted right. were not unjustly killed as a result. Which is great. Yeah. <laughs> Which is fantastic. <laughs> this is a place where I am continuing to suss out my own thoughts. And I also want you to stop just asking me questions and I'm going to put you on the spot and ask you the same. But yeah, I th- well, well, you know me, I have answers <laughs> to these questions and they're short and succinct and I've thought them out, but you're the one who's on the larger scale of these things and sort of questioning whether any of my answers make any sense. And so like, we've got to get through you first. Otherwise <laughs> I won't be able to say two sentences before you're like, but did you think about, because that's the dynamic of this conversation, right? Ish. I'll give you a f- kind of, and I, th- I think the answer <laughs> is listeners, listeners. That was uh, the rare point. Where Chris Kreitcho just acknowledged that I was right. That's what that sounds <laughs> hey, like. I know. I say, I say you're right all the time when you already agree with me. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. But when I don't. <laughs> to be fair. I'm right. <laughs> the same is true the other way around. Let's, let's oh, be yeah. fair I'm, here. I'm not going to say it's not. <laughs> but there was a moment that just happened right there. Uh, I'm a self-aware enough to acknowledge that I'm apt to say, but have you thought about? Okay, now go forward. And then I'll, and then I'll jump in and say what I think about it. I think that it is that same kind of both and. I think that looking at specific kinds of changes we think need to happen. As a great example, I think Ben Thompson's weekly article this week on a strategy for regulating things on the internet was an excellent attempt to outline a framework that actually understands the 
real contours of the problem that we're talking about. And we'll yeah. link that to you. We strongly commend it to you. It's careful and it understands the kinds of knock-on effects that regulation can have that we've talked about in the past. And and Thompson has clearly shifted his own thinking on this as he's watched and m- considered things around YouTube and Facebook in particular in the last year, which is great to see. His framework attempts to tease out some of those important differences between something like Facebook and YouTube and your ISP in how you should be regulating them and what you ought to do. And I think that kind of thing, whether it's Ben Thompson doing that or Jessica Blank going after the death penalty and unjust executions and so on, I think those kinds of carefully focused things are pretty easy to say we can and should be doing those. They don't necessarily move the needle in a shorter medium term on some of these things. But then again, Thompson's approach to regulation, if adopted, actually might move the needle on some of these longer term things. It's not going to get us out of the technocratic milieu by a long shot, but it might undercut some of the worst of It would stop the us current... from going farther down. Yes, exactly. And in particular, going further down along certain paths. Right. To your turn. So to, to, <laughs> to my end, one of the things that I most resonated with when we talked to Ari was his idea of virtuous interventions. So these ideas of small things <clears throat> that individual people or individual groups of people can do in an awareness of what they are doing and why they are doing it to personally and in community have an effect on a particular issue. Right. The hand-washing example. The hand-washing example. Public health is a fascinating field, and it's it's super, super pragmatic and also super, super, super ideological, <laughs> right? So right. it has both of the ends covered, which is really rare. There's yes. very few fields that do both of this in that public health literally wants to keep everyone alive forever in perfect <laughs> health. That's like the ideal goal of public health because they're just going to keep doing interventions until that happens or like the world ends. Like public health doesn't have an end other than utopia, which is beyond the scope of this conversation. My friend Matthew um, Loftus might disagree with you on that, but that's also another conversation. We should have him on some time. That's another conversation, yeah. But we'll, I, we should actually circle back on that at the end of the season because that's a valuable sort of case study. Yeah, I but think you're right. The point I'm saying is that they have this long-term view, this goal, this ideal, but they also acknowledge like, hey, like, you know what the most important thing you can do? Wash your hands. Whether you're at your table eating lunch or in a hospital room, wash your hands. Uh, make a list, yep. like the the checklist, the Atul Gawande checklist manifesto. Uh, these are basic things that, one, people don't do, and two, <laughs> right. have real effects. And so to me, interventions is how I think about action in the world. So that's why I was super excited about that, because I know mm. that I'm not going to change the technocratic milieu in my lifetime. Like, I know that. But the goal of what I'm doing here is to hand this off to someone else or someone else or someone else all down the line who could make those those changes and who could take the work and go forward. And again, I'm referencing this church history podcast that I've been <laughs> listening to. It's going to taper off because I've made it almost to the end of the podcast. So, <laughs> And it had an end. <laughs> Last one's called The End. But there's this long stretch of history where like basically from like the year 700, 800, 900 era to like 1400, like the the papacy just has significant and terrible problems. Like <laughs> True story. That make, that make 
our current problems look good. Like, it is real bad in that particular era. And there are people who faithfully just continued doing, like, the good work of the Catholic Church, even though, like, everything above them was just falling apart. And that's Mm because they were handing it off to someone else, who would then hand it off to someone else, who would hand it off to someone else. And so I think of myself in that long line of people. And so when I think about acting in the world, I I do have this sort of long-term vision of people flourishing, and I have a clear vision of what that looks like. But I also have this, this sense of like, as you noted, we, we're, we live in a time and a space and a place. And so there are some things that we can't do. Like, would I abolish credit scores tomorrow if I could? Yes, I would. Right, like, same. I would just, you know, they would have to make actual decisions. They would have to like. They would have to talk to people. They would have to assess. They would have to basically interview people the way that people have to interview people for for jobs. Uh, you know, you're making the same sorts of decisions, and there's a long line of of analysis that shows that like when you actually talk to people and and get to know them and try to interview them, you have a fairly good chance of figuring out whether they're going to be good or not at what you want them to do. Right, and if you embed that more in local communities. It also helps. It can hurt. Right, right. But it can also help. Yeah, it can hurt because, like, you know, somebody who's trying to get their life back together and, like, they've already had, you know, X number of chances and maybe Y is the one that actually takes. But, like, if you've already had X number of chances, it's going to be tougher in your local community. This is literally the problem of localism is it has long memories. If you don't have mercy, then you have problems. So that's what I see that I'm most connected with out of Ari's work is that Obviously, Ari and I have wildly different ends. Obviously, Ari and I have different approaches, actual interventions that we're going to try to do. Ari works with large companies. Mm-hmm. That's what they do. Uh, they are at Longpath. Uh, Jessica Blank uses art and does art in these particular ways. I run this podcast and write journal articles and give public talks and do these sorts of things. So there's a sense to me that everyone acting, the more that you can build those communities of practice and the more that you can have people that are sharing their virtuous life and being shaped together, as we both agree is important, no matter what people do, whether they are forming a intentional community and all living together in a building or whether they <laughs> go about their their lives in suburban houses as some of us are doomed to do <laughs> you now know steven's thoughts on suburbia everyone oh my gosh it's a it's a long story <laughs> but that's the short end so there's a sense at which no matter what you do whatever it looks like if you are doing those sorts of spiritual moral religious formation aspects and you're working towards whatever end you're you're going towards. This is the theology of vocation bit that I really love. Mm-hmm. You're going to be working towards those positive ends. And so, one, that's why it's really important for us to be telling as many people as possible, you live in a technocratic milieu, and maybe that's really awful, and maybe it's just bad. But either way, it's there, and you to work towards the good of the world, you need to kind of move out of that to some extent, either entirely, somewhat, or, you know, maybe it just looks like t- training people to not use algorithms so abusively badly. <laughs> like, that would be a right. great step that actually does not include putting down technology in any sense. It just includes thinking a little bit more humanistically about a technology. 
because you don't even have to go that far away from the level of the technology to be like, huh, that's kind of bad, isn't that? <laughs> yeah, that's not good. That's really kind of bad. Uh, so I don't even think you have to get all the way over to our ends of saying, like, we need to resist the technocratic milieu that we are living in by formation of virtuous communities to say, yeah, redlining via algorithm seems like a bad thing. And so anybody who's working towards that right. end, if there's enough virtuous development there that they're able to say that, which clearly many people aren't, but if there's enough virtue development there to get people to go in that direction, I count that as an intervention. Is that an ideal intervention? No. Is it perhaps even the best possible intervention or an intervention that you and I would take if we had the option? Maybe not. But I count those sorts of things as moving in one direction against moving in another direction. I care a lot about trajectories. Yeah. Um, I learned this from someone in my college years. <laughs> no idea who you're talking about. Yeah. I think in many ways we're agreed there. The notion of trajectory obviously is one we share. The commitment to incrementalism is also one we share. Clearly, we're on a podcast called Winning Slowly still five years later with our 300 listeners or whatever it is. Thank you. You're all awesome. You You're also clearly best. share a commitment to incrementalism. Yeah. And, uh, and I, I think incrementalism gives it a bad name. I like to think of it as interventions. I like to think of it as positive working in the world. And this also makes it seem less like, you know, I'm just doing this meager thing like i'm just contributing <laughs> right. a tiny bit to the universe like if you're doing your moral best to improve the universe that's a thing that's going to make you want to keep doing that more than if people are like yeah i mean it doesn't really matter how much energy you use in your house because like the nuclear power plant down the way is making tons and tons and tons more than you could ever <laughs> really use that's i think i think the place where i am less optimistic was the word I think we decided to land on for you. Yeah, we'll call it. Is I do share a concern that Michael Sakasas has raised a couple times, and I think rightly uh, to look at things like the Center for Humane Technology, and you use the word a more humanistic, the, the word humane gets used a lot in this context right now. I think making our technologies more humane is good. I well, share si that. Side note, humane and humanistic are very different. It is it is true. And they come from dramatically different presuppositions. So that's why I use that word specifically as an, and not use the word humane. I will give you that. I think the tendency toward the humane very much suffers from this. And the tendency well, That's because the humane only exists once you get to liberal atomistic experiences, but continue. Yes. Even the notion that so the the humanistic turn that you're talking about, interventions that make algorithms less terrible. I think those are good in the small. I think the risk for them, especially especially for the humane framing, right. is that they can keep us comfortable rather than helping us. They, they can ameliorate the worst effects just enough that they actually have the net effect of cementing the broader profoundly bad structure. And I don't think that means that those specific interventions are bad. I am grateful yeah, when Amazon rather... <laughs> says, hey, we're going to fix our algorithm so it doesn't exclude women from our hiring process. Yeah, I would rather that. Hey, guess what? That's, that is legitimately better. But I do think we have to be aware at a minimum 
to circle back to that one end that I suggested at the beginning, we do have to be aware that those things can serve as buffers against the fact that, no, we still need bigger changes. You could ameliorate the worst of the credit system, the credit score system, and it's possible that doing so would make it so that the energy to actually tear down the credit system just dissipated. Yeah, that's totally valid. I'm, I'm not going to argue with that. I, that, I think, is the biggest concern I have around intervention-oriented framings, which is not to say that I disagree with you about any particular intervention. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just I, that I think there is a real and genuine risk there. Yeah, I think that is true. I mean, this is, you know, you start talking about the civil rights uh, the 50s and the 60s, right? Like right. this was one of the ongoing discussions in yep. the the whole thing from soup to nuts was like, hey, things are better. And people are like, not better enough. Right. And other people were like, how much better is better enough? And <laughs> people were like, here are some details of better enough. And they were like, that's not possible. And they were like, no, it is. It is possible. Like, we can do this. And they were right. like, no, we can't. And like, and one would, one can and probably should argue that many of the travails we're having on race today in America are, are the a same. function. Right. They're a function of having gotten far enough for people to be comfortable. Well, yeah, I would agree with that. But also, one, yes, what you're describing is real. It's historically real. It's conceptually real. The problem is that that's a good problem to have. Right. We're glad that we're not where we were in the 50s. And right now, we're basically John Wycliffe, right? Like John Wycliffe was (laughs) 150 years ahead of whatever was going to happen and like – ended poorly without really achieving the things that he wanted to achieve. And it took a lot more time before he could even get to the point where people were like, okay, that's far enough. So I do see your problem there. And I think that's real, but I would love to get to that. problem, <laughs> Right. And I and think, that's, and that's the difference between you and me is that you, I, I see the benefit in setting things up so that you don't end up with that problem. And it for things to take longer so that you, once you get to wherever it is, you already have things set up so that you don't hit that problem. Right. I see the value in that. But I also struggle with it's going to take so much more time to do that when there are things that are bad happening now. Like we don't – I mean I don't even need to touch case studies of race to, sh- to say. Like right? Like there's they just an onslaught of right. bad things that are happening. So – I think I what I want to do, and I know that this is hard and maybe even impossible, is to put both of those together, to be doing interventions, but also being able to have those interventions be, let's say, like planned for this moment. Right. And and it's hard. It is. I think some of the things we talked about last season start to help us walk that way. And I think there's more I want to come back to this throughout the rest of this season because I think this points us at something that is actually a really useful – I don't even want to use the word useful because it gestures toward utilitarianism. But I think a helpful frame here, which is to be able to discern in that sense of wisdom, which we've talked about increasingly, when you should choose which – and where you should choose which. Is it the right time to say, look, this is – we might lose – it might actually take us longer – 
to get there if we make this short-term intervention here. But it's so bad that we have to tweak this. Right. So let's do this in the frame of, okay, it's going to take us longer in the net, but we have to make that nudge here. We have to, nudging is a loaded term too, though perhaps some of our <laughs> listeners won't be, dang it, everything is compromised. It's almost Every- like we live in a broken world, Stephen. Oh, man. But then also on the flip side to say, I get why you want to do that here. Yes. But making that choice now precludes us from getting over there or so horribly delays us from being able to do the right. harder, deeper work. And it's right. never obvious what those are. This is literally the definition of wisdom in all the wisdom traditions of the world. Uh, to put it humorously, knowing the difference between a tomato as a fruit. cooking vegetable and a garden <laughs> fruit. They're different <laughs> things. But to be able to really understand that context does, as we've been saying for a very long time now, matter, and to recognize that in different places, even in just different geographies in the United States, different responses might be appropriate, different interventions or not might be appropriate. The history of Chicago on race means that what Chicago needs to do might be different than what Durham, North Carolina needs to do, might be different than what Sacramento, California needs to do. And wisdom necessarily necessitates digging in hard at those local levels. Yes, sometimes broader than that, but recognizing that the appropriate interventions and which interventions will hurt more than they help in the long term are going to vary at that scale. And I think that's a big part of where we're going to keep hammering, arguing our way toward this season. However, we're out of time for today. So and I I will say as a as a summary that I think one of the things you just mentioned, the sense of scale, once again, is critically important to that discussion because things that are valuable interventions at a national level may not be at a uh, neighborhood level and vice versa. So the song at the beginning of the episode was Hidden Worlds. Wait for it. He's so excited. By Teen Days. (laughs) (laughs) That's the last Teen Days song for this season, though, but it it was a good run. Thanks, Teen Days. Thanks for letting us use your songs. We appreciate it. Thanks, as always, as well, to all of our sponsors, including this month, Nathaniel Blaney, who is sponsoring it, the We Shout You Out on every episode tier. What's up, Nathaniel? Indeed. You can sponsor at patreon.com slash winning slowly or cash.me slash dollar sign winning slowly. If you have comments or thoughts or ideas, we'd love to hear them. Tweet at the show at winning slowly or tweet at us individually at chris kreicho at scaradini send us an email at hello at winning org, or if you're that one faithful listener that keeps <laughs> sending us facebook messages hi chad keep on keeping on <laughs> thanks for listening see you in two weeks Hold on. Let me just pull this up so I have a quick reference to some of the specific things I want to say. I should have done that beforehand. You know. So you can cite yourself? Correct. (laughs) Let me make sure that I'm citing myself correctly. Exactly.